I spent 25 years at the New York Times and then another eight years at ProPublica. And there were moments in which I questioned myself. I was like, should I really go spend months in Omaha to report this story? It's a story of complexity and confusion with no real hero. honor to have Joe Sexton in this book, The Lost Sons of Omaha. You're the only reporter that has both families. It's absolutely wonderful. I think especially for us local folks, a must read. It's a fascinating look behind the curtain of the justice system. And I consider myself pretty informed, but there were just things on what happens in a homicide unit the relationship with Don Klein and how the prosecuting entities are involved that was very fascinating outside the specifics of this particular case. And I just thought maybe this guy's going to come. New York Times, legendary pedigree. I've worked in CBS News in the Fishbowl in New York. A lot of people there have never met anyone from Nebraska. I was often the first person from Omaha they've met. The impression is everything from cornfields to whatever and you nailed it and really respect that it's so well done and i guess we could go back to the point that this did come across you were at ProPublica, and an attorney you were looking to fill a day's news in a very hectic summer of 2020 and a local attorney here in omaha had written essentially a pitch query to you and i guess my first question to you is did you foresee that becoming a book or at what point did you realize, boy, this is a heavy project? Yeah, I began my career as a reporter at a tiny, actually black startup newspaper, weekly newspaper in Brooklyn, New York, 40 plus years ago. Um, but whether you're working at the City Sun, which is what the paper was called, or you're working at the New York Times with its thousands of reporters and deep pockets, whatever, a lot that goes on in the news business is driven by a kind of degree of daily desperation. What do we have for tomorrow? And it doesn't matter that you have 1,300 reporters. There's always an anxiety about, do we have anything for Wednesday's paper? Yeah. So I got a call. I was back in Brooklyn during the pandemic in July of 2020. I got a call from the executive editor at ProPublica. And he had a, a familiar crisis, which was there was a hole in the publishing schedule for the following Tuesday, and we needed a story. And he said, there's a story out in, in Omaha. Maybe you could look into it. It looks like it was a racial killing in Omaha. And he forwarded on, as you mentioned, the sort of pitch from this local attorney in Omaha, which was basically that a white supremacist had killed a young black man and gotten away with it. And it took me about 30 minutes of some pretty rudimentary research to understand whatever the story was, it was a lot more complicated than that. And I did some initial reporting to figure out whether some of the elements of what this local lawyer was alleging about Jake Gardner and his family was really true. And you could quickly look up, he had alleged that Gardner's father had been indoctrinated into white supremacy while behind bars in Texas for drug running. So I was pretty quickly able to look up Texas prison records and understand that Gardner's father had never been locked up in Texas. And I engaged with my boss and said, I don't know, guys, we're definitely not turning the story around for Tuesday yeah. on this. And it may not even be anything remotely like the story you think it is. 
And they were fine. And of course, the crisis passes and something else is found and the Tuesday hole is plugged. And But I kept paying attention. And with every almost every week and then every month, something surprising to me would happen. The appointment of a special prosecutor to yep. convene a grand jury and open, in effect, a second investigation. And when I realized that special prosecutor was an African-American lawyer from Omaha, I thought, okay, that could be a good thing. That could also exacerbate things as well. And then when the indictments were returned, I was genuinely shocked. And then five days after that, when Jay Gardner took his own life on the eve of surrendering to face the charges, I said to myself, like, this doesn't happen every day. Right. And I got to figure out what the hell happened in Omaha. And I initially set out with the idea of maybe doing a lengthy piece for ProPublica or maybe a magazine piece. I never foresaw that it would become a book or that it would consume almost three years of my life. But in many ways, I'm glad that it did. It's a rare opportunity for somebody who spent most of his career as a daily journalist to have the kind of time and freedom and resources to be able to report out a book-length version of a story. So it was a real privilege to be able to do. And at the end of the day, various people who I would tell about the story, about what I was doing, and show them drafts of some of the initial magazine versions of it that I had written, they would tell me, oh, Joe, it looks fascinating, but I would prepare to be canceled right. when it comes out. Like people, I wonder if there had been well, resistance you know, on that. Not, not from ProPublica, but yeah. there was just or caution concern. from... because. Everybody was on edge and newsrooms have become fairly fraught places with questions of who got to tell whose story and questions of woke newsrooms or yeah. or far right newsrooms. So it felt a little intimidating to attempt to do. But I figured I made it to 60. If I was going to be canceled, I was ready to be canceled. And the really one of the most gratifying things that has happened is none of that kind of anticipated blowback has surfaced. That doesn't mean I think everybody who's read the piece, the book, or read something about the book is thrilled with it or finds it entirely persuasive one way or the other. But the singular thing that I will take away from the whole experience for me is that both the families, both the Skirlock family and the Gardner family, you know, with whom I had been engaged simultaneously for a couple of years, and each family knew that I was talking to the other family and they had no good reason first to trust me and no good reason to be participating in an effort that involves a family that they saw as in some way responsible for the death of their child. But both those families, when I gave them the final version of the book, I would say I think they blessed it. I'm sure it was quite hard for both families to read. Painful again, I'm sure they might have a million quibbles with it. But I think they respected it as an honest effort to, as I say in the dedication to the book, to tell a story straight, which feels like a rarity today, right? What used to be a yep. simple journalistic achievement, which is tell a story straight, now feels like it's almost vanishingly rare. I believe you've referred to it in interviews as an experiment in empathy and I thought that was a good explanation and summation. I would almost call it radically empathetic. And I wondered if the feedback you've gotten from the families, I thought as I was reading it, are they even going to read the section about the other side or are they going to just skip through? Do you think yeah. the players no, I, involved I, I, I have read they, it all? Yeah. 
And again, it, it must just be heartbreaking for each family to yeah. read it. But I think they actually really found out some information about the other protagonist in this that surprised them. And it's not, I don't know that it will ever heal their heart or yeah. take away their degree of anger and upset at the other family. But for me, I'll just give you one quick example. After the gardener had shot James dead in the street and then killed himself several months later, James Skirl, young James Skirlock's criminal record had become one of the features of the story, right? Yeah. And for those who were siding with the Gardner family or with the sort of right-wing take on the tragedy, that criminal record sort of validated the sense that somehow James Skirlock was on that night out trashing businesses and a thug who got what he deserved. And there had been references to the fact that as a young kid, he had been arrested first at age 11 and then at age 16 in an armed robbery or an armed home invasion. And I was able to get James Gerlach's criminal records. And when you find out, what was he arrested for at age 11? And it turns out that he was living in a homeless shelter in Norfolk, Nebraska, with his mom and at least five siblings. He's an 11-year-old boy. He winds up going into a neighbor's house and taking like a PlayStation or a game with some videos. And there was there was nothing violent about it. There was nothing. It's a boy looking for a toy, right? A homeless boy looking for a toy. And that he's ultimately charged with burglary or whatever. And that becomes really significant in his life when at 16, he plays a minor role in a kind of knuckleheaded home invasion involving his older brother, where they try to knock off a drug house in Norfolk. And it's almost a comedy of errors of a home invasion. He forgot you know, the bag the, that the, that was going to carry the loot. Oh, right. Yeah. And his brother JT's had a mask on, but it was falling off. And it turns out one of the women in the house where they were trying to take some marijuana and some money was somebody who had worked with James's brother, JT, at McDonald's, knew his voice and instantly recognized him. So the whole thing went to the went to pieces. But when James is ultimately charged, that burglary as an 11-year-old taking a toy as a homeless boy is used to actually sentence, try him and sentence him as an adult. And he's sent away for three to five years. So when I explained that to the Gardner family, they were absolutely shocked. Really? They had only read the news accounts that said he was in, involved in home invasion. And in their, understandably, in their imagination, they saw it as they must have busted on an elderly couple and terrorized yeah. them and tied them up. And it was nothing of the kind, which is not to excuse it. Sure. I mean, whether it's people who are dealing drugs or not, whether they're semi-friends of yours or not, you can't be walking in with a weapon and trying to steal people's money. But it was far cry from what the Gardner family thought. And, and he I wasn't even 18 gut, at that point. He was 16. Yeah, yep. he was 16 and tried and sentenced as an adult. And so I think the uh, I, my money would bet that the Gardner family found that in some way humanizing and a better understanding of who James was and what his background was. Yeah, that's and, interesting. You know, James, yeah, James, like all of us, and Jake as well. We all have stuff we have to answer for in our lives. But one of the elements of this 
story and ultimately book that was so troubling for me is there is this almost obsession in America today with this phenomenon of reducing each other to our worst moments, right? And whether that happens on Twitter or in some kind of political debate or we're divided and mistrustful of each other, that the first instinct is to, if I only know a little bit about your life and that's unflattering in some way, that becomes the defining sense of, of that I have of you. Yep. And if we're all, you, me, if I were reduced to my worst moments, it'd be an ugly picture. Uh, sure. Trust me. For any of us. And it's also, you weave in, there's many fascinating threads and the narrative kind of bounces back and forth from different perspectives across not just the Gardner and Skurlock families and their own kind of personal story, but a lot of Don Klein's story. So this is a varied perspective that we have not seen and certain things I'm a little surprised haven't popped yet locally in revelations from the book, I have to say. What did you make of the police chief? And I have some friends on the police force that I've recommended this book to. But w were you able to interview him or did he decline? He's not prominent in the book, but he shows up on occasion in interesting ways. Yeah. First off, you're a very good reader. So it's nice to have somebody read your book as closely as Thank you have. You. Yeah, it was a real frustration for me and ultimately a disappointment. When I, the very first time I came into Omaha, I reached out to Todd, the police chief, and expressed an interest in coming in and talking. And I made clear that I understood he might be limited in what he could say about this particular sure. case and the details of it, but that I was interested in hearing about the Omaha Police Department, its, its history and its challenges and what I assumed he would regard as its good works and achievements. And for whatever reason, and it's still a bit of a mystery to me, he would never engage. And I kept at it and kept at it. I must have an email chain, 30 or 40 emails long between me and his press person. And I couldn't quite figure it out. And maybe it, they looked me up and so I was from the New York Times and ProPublica and figured like I was going to somehow be anti-cop or sure. anti-police. Uh, but... Leaving aside my disappointment, I think it's actually an abdication of his responsibility. This was a, a seminal event in Omaha's recent history. The unrest that followed the protest by the department's own description was the worst upset in 50 years in Omaha. Talking to the public through a reporter or through a book writer or whatever, I think is a responsibility for a police chief to share what wisdom he has or what insight, to answer for some of the claims made against his department, to respond to the mixture of outrageous assertions and genuine upset from everybody from the two families to the people of Omaha. So I, it did not, in the end, strike me as a profile and courage. And when I did learn some of his behavior around this case, I started maybe to understand why he was reluctant to talk. There are two things that stand out for me. One is that when Don Klein, the Douglas County attorney, was trying to decide whether or not to charge Jake Gardner in the hours after the incident, <clears throat> the shooting on May 30th, he convened a group of people, the people from the homicide unit within the OPD, there was the mayor's, Gene Stotha, chief of staff was there, 
and Schmetterer was there, and they all expressed support for Klein's ultimate conclusion and decision that he would never be able to overcome a claim of self-defense on Gardner's part, and that he couldn't therefore go ahead and file charges. And Schmetterer had promised Klein that he would appear with him at the news conference in which that development would be announced to the people of Omaha, and he failed to show up. And worse than that, a day or two later, Schmetterer was in a meeting with the governor, Governor Ricketts, and a number of leaders from the African-American community in Omaha, and was recorded making the claim that, in fact, he had encouraged Klein to charge Gardner, and Klein had decided to go another way. And it's just an outright untruth. Yeah. And ultimately, Klein's deputy, Brenda Beadle, calls Schmader out on that question, and he really has no explanation other than to say he's sorry. But he didn't say he's sorry to the people of Omaha, who he had seemingly misled about what his real role in this case was. Yeah, it's fascinating. And the mayor doesn't get a pass either. She, in one fascinating moment, after Klein has decided that he's not going to charge Gardner, he gets a text from the mayor asking him whether he couldn't just charge Gardner with some minor crime or whatever so that he could hold him in jail a while longer to make it look maybe better to the public and manage the politics of it for the mayor. And she's basically asking a prosecutor to do an unethical thing. Uh, and she would never talk to me either. And I put that question to her directly and she wouldn't come to the table and own it and talk about it. Yeah, incredible stuff. 